copy of the scriptures. Please turn with me this morning to Habakkuk chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, go to the book of Nahum and go after that. Uh, And if you don't know where that is, I'd say just table of contents, probably the best best way to go. Uh, Habakkuk is a a minor prophet, uh, which means not that he is unimportant, uh, but that he is short. Uh, So Habakkuk is three chapters. I, I have ambivalent feelings about having a favorite book of the Bible. Uh, like that seems like maybe something where you shouldn't have favorites. Uh, but at various points in my life, the book of Habakkuk has been profoundly encouraging to me. And what I think is so encouraging about the book of Habakkuk is that it is one of the most emotionally honest books of the Bible there is. We see pain, we see suffering, and we see God inviting Habakkuk to bring all of that to him. And God shows us how he's going to deal with pain and suffering and sin and death as well. So we will be in Habakkuk for the next uh, five weeks. Uh, All through the month of May, we'll be looking at uh, Habakkuk, and uh, I'm excited to spend this time with you. Uh, Our text this morning is Habakkuk 1, verses 1 to 11. So let me read this, and then we will pray and ask God for his help to understand it. Habakkuk 1, 1 to 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This is God's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we look at this passage this morning. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live, but you've given us your word. Father, as we look at Habakkuk this morning, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would give us understanding, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our hearts and our experiences. Father, we pray that you would show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.
when Habakkuk opens, Habakkuk the prophet is looking around, and everything is terrible. Everything is terrible. This is completely unrelatable, I know, to your lives, but Habakkuk looks around and everything is awful. And you get a sense, if you look, if you know when Habakkuk is happening in biblical history, you can understand a little more of what is happening. But Jeremiah 23 is roughly contemporary with the time of Habakkuk. And that tells us that the prophets and the priests themselves were wicked. Those who were called to minister to God's people were deep into adultery and abusing their power to enrich themselves and to harm God's people. The king at the time that Habakkuk is writing is King Jehoiakim. And we know from Jeremiah 22 that Jehoiakim is enslaving God's people and shedding their innocent blood. He is killing God's people willy-nilly, wantonly. Jeremiah 26 tells us he's killing the prophets as well. The faithful prophets stand up to say what God wants, and the king is killing them because he doesn't like what they are saying. In Habakkuk's lifetime, he has gone from King Josiah to King Jehoiakim. If you know anything about King Josiah, you can read more about him in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Josiah was a good king. When I was a kid growing up in the church, we had musicals, and I was in one about King Josiah, and I keep hearing it, the song over and over in my head that Josiah was a good, good king. He's a good, good king. <laughs> Josiah was great. Second Kings 22 and 23 tell us that Josiah rebuilt the temple. He repaired the temple. And when that was happening, they rediscovered the book of the law. And Josiah reads the law and weeps before God for the wickedness that had come into the people of Israel. And Josiah leads the nation in repentance and reinstitutes the law and reinstitutes the sacrifices. And they celebrate the Passover again. And there's this great time of national revival and goodness. And God is pleased with his people again. That's what Habakkuk's childhood was like. And then now, as Habakkuk looks around, uh, Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, is wickedly slaying. The prophets is enslaving God's people and the prophets and the priests were abusing God's people. Things are terrible in Israel. And so you can imagine what it would feel like to live in a time like that. Verse 2 begins with simply, how long, O Lord? How long will things be like this? Look at what Habakkuk praise to God in these opening verses, verses 2 to 4. He says not only how long, but he says, Lord, how long will you not hear? Like, like, Lord, how long will you not hear what your people are praying? How long will we cry out about violence and you will do nothing about it? This is a profound prayer Habakkuk is praying. Look at verse 3. How long, O Lord, will you see evil and idly look at it? Look at it without doing anything. 
Look at verse 4. Lord, how long are you going to let the law be paralyzed? Your people just walk in wickedness. And how long are you going to let justice not go forth? These are strong words. These are words that might even make us flinch as we think about what it would feel like, what it would look like, what it would sound like to pray them to our God. But friends, I suspect that many of us look around at the world around us and we feel something similar to this. We look around and we see things just seem to be falling apart. So what do we do? What do we do when the world is falling apart? When we are confronted with the sinfulness of the world, when we are confronted with the brokenness of the world, Habakkuk shows us what to do. Habakkuk laments. Habakkuk laments the brokenness of the world. And lament means simply talking to God about our distress. It means telling God about the bad things we see and experience and pointing out to God the discrepancy between his character and his promises and what we are experiencing. Lament is not just complaining. Lament is not just expressing grief. Lament is talking to God about it and asking him to act. And friends, the Bible is full of lament. The Bible is full of lament. The Psalms are full of lament. The prophets are full of lament. In the Gospels, we see Jesus himself lament. We see these words and we flinch because we can't imagine saying this to God. But what I want you to see is these words, these laments are not unfaithful. These words are actually profoundly faithful. Which is why verse 1 is so helpful and so important for understanding what is happening here. Verse 1 says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Friends, this whole conversation between Habakkuk and God, it goes back and forth several times, this whole conversation is inspired by God. This whole conversation is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, which means something amazing. We flinch when we hear these words, but God gave Habakkuk these words to speak. Think of that. God gave these words to Habakkuk. In other words, Habakkuk isn't just expressing his feelings. Habakkuk isn't just relaying his private experience. God wants Habakkuk to say these things. God wants to Habakkuk to say, Lord, how long will I cry and you do not hear? God wants Habakkuk to say, why do you look idly at wrong? Why do you not let justice go forth? God gave Habakkuk those words to speak. Because God is teaching Habakkuk and God is teaching us to lament. God is teaching us to do this. 
About the best example of what I can say that God is inviting us to do here comes from a country song. Chris Stapleton's song, Fire Away, where he says this. He says, honey, load up your questions and pick up your sticks and your stones and pretend I'm a shelter for heartaches that don't have a home. Choose the words that cut like a razor and all that I'll say is fire away. Take your best shot. Show me what you got. Honey, I'm not afraid. Rear back and take aim and fire away. I can sing songs from kids' musicals. I'm not going to attempt Stapleton uh, for y'all. Friends, that's what God is inviting Habakkuk to do here. That's what God is inviting us to do and what God is teaching us to do because lament for us is essential to a healthy spirituality, a healthy walking with Jesus because we live in a broken and a sinful world. We have to learn how to lament. You will experience pain. You will experience sin. You will sin and you will be sinned against. You will experience brokenness in this world. And when that happens, God invites you and God commands you. And in fact, God teaches you to lament. When things are hard, God says, fire away. Fire away. But we're really bad at lament. We are really bad at lament. Why do you think that is? Why are we so bad at telling God the hard things in our lives? Why are we so bad at that? One thing I think is that we're just uncomfortable with the pain of ourselves and with the pain of others. It's hard to be in pain and it's hard to be with people who are in pain. And so we hate to lament. We feel like we should just distract ourselves instead. We should numb ourselves instead. We don't lament because we don't know what to do with pain. We're uncomfortable with it. I think another problem we face as Christians is that we falsely believe that the joy to which the gospel calls us is the same thing as happiness. It is not. We, we falsely believe that like a faithful Christian posture is perpetually sunny, is perpetually happy and Perky, And we believe that because we have misunderstood verses like Philippians 4.4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. But rejoicing simply means we live in light of what is most true. That we realize that our pain and our suffering and our hardship and our sin is not ultimately the most true thing, but God's love for us in Christ is the most thing. There's the most true thing. That's why it is rejoice in the Lord, not be happy with your situation. We rejoice. Uh, One theologian says that lament is rejoicing, living in light of what is most true, in a minor key. I think that's really helpful. Lament is rejoicing in a minor key. I think another reason we're bad at lament 
is that we secretly suspect that prayer is pointless. I think that's something that we might not confess to ourselves, we might not say out loud, but I think we honestly sometimes think if God is really sovereign, what I do, what I pray, what I think, what I say doesn't really matter. And so we've sort of psychologized prayer. And we sort of said, like, we've got this idea that, well, maybe the best way to think about prayer is that prayer doesn't really change God. Prayer just sort of changes us. But friends, prayer is talking to God and asking him to do things. And prayer certainly does change us, but God answers prayer. God acts. It is a good thing to pray. It is a good thing to lament. In fact, Habakkuk reminds us and demonstrates that God answers prayer because it doesn't end at verse 4, but continues. In verses 5 to 11, God answers Habakkuk's prayer. And here is God's answer, functionally. Oh, you want me to do something. Verse 5 says, good news, I will. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. I'm raising up this nation of powerful and wicked idolaters. And they are going to come and they are going to judge you. Verse 6 says they are a bitter and hasty nation. They seize dwellings that they didn't make. Verse 7 tells us they are dreaded and fearsome. Verse 9 says they will come for violence and they will gather captives. Verse 10 said they are going to laugh at you. They are going to mock your kings. Verse 11, God just fully acknowledges these are guilty men whose might is their own God. They are idolaters and they trust in themselves. And what is important for us to note here is that God does not always respond to our prayers and our laments in the ways we might expect or even want. It's why C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia says over and over and over again that Aslan is not a tame lion. God does what he wants. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Habakkuk wants repentance. Habakkuk wants revival in the land, and God instead sends judgment. And it's really important that we understand what we are asking for when we ask God to deal with sin. It's really important that we understand when we say to God, look at all the sin out here, what are you going to do about it? We are asking God for something important. The great uh, Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way, He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? When we ask God to deal with sin, we can't want God just to deal with other people's sin and ignore our own. In fact, I think central to the book of Habakkuk is this conviction that God is always more concerned about the sin of his 
own people than he is the sin of outsiders. Outsiders don't get a pass. Um, That's going to be very, very clear as we go through Habakkuk. But God is always most concerned about the sin of his own people. Uh, That's why, for instance, I preach more about what I guess your sins are than the sins of the people who are outside the walls of the church. The reason for this is that God has put his name on us. We are called out of darkness. We are brought into light. We are meant to be a people for God's own possession who bear witness to his character and his goodness in the world. And our sin speaks poorly of him. Our sin is worse. This is why 1 Peter tells us that judgment begins with the house of God. But still... This is a tough pill to swallow, right? Like, Lord, your people are messing up. And God says, good news, I'm sending worse people to judge them. That's a tough pill. The solution seems to be worse than the problem. But friends, what I want to say is, that seems to always be the case. I suspect this is true to your experience. And here's what I mean. I keep hoping that sanctification is going to happen in me in a mountain retreat somewhere. That that as I am relaxing by a fire with a nice book and a cup of coffee, that God is going to make me more holy. I keep hoping that's going to happen. But God doesn't seem terribly interested in that being the path for me to grow in grace. Instead, hard things keep happening. Maybe this is true of you as well. In fact, I dare say I know it is. Your kids will get sick in the middle of the night. You're going to have struggles in your marriages and in your relationships. You have difficulty and hardship at work and in your neighborhood and in all of your gatherings. And those are the places where God is at work. The author of Hebrews tells us that the founder of our salvation was made perfect, not through a mountain retreat, but through suffering. Friends, the same is true of us. Have any of y'all ever prayed for patience? Have you regretted it? (laughs) It's like, Lord, make me patient. Well, you know that if you do that, at every drive-thru, you're going to get behind the guy who's ordering a hundred different tacos for the entire construction site. (laughs) You're going to get caught in every bit of traffic, right? Like we want God to teach us these things and to change us sort of in the abstract, but what God keeps doing is putting us in situations where we are forced to reckon with our sin and to confront it and to see it, and to turn from it. And sometimes it feels to us like the solution is worse than the problem. And part of what Habakkuk is calling us to do is to avoid the temptation to sort of reconcile all of the tension that we feel here. God is saying, hard things are coming, I'm at work in the hard things, and I want you to tell me when the things are hard. Like, ask me to fix them. Ask me to act. 
And there's tension there because God is the one who is sovereign over all of that. But if we look for some sort of easy answer, some easy reconciliation, we are going to short circuit the very formation to which God is inviting Habakkuk and to which God is inviting us. It's really important to note that all, everywhere you see the word you in verses 5 to 11 is in the plural. It's y'all. So God inspires Habakkuk to ask this and then he answers back to all of us. This is God's instruction for us. And when we lament sin and its effects, which God is inviting us and calling us to do, we are asking God to do something. And the thing we are asking God to do is to judge sin and wickedness. When we lament, we are calling on God for judgment. And here, surprisingly to Habakkuk and surprisingly to us, God raises up the Babylonians to do that, to discipline and to judge his sinful people. But there is something profoundly important we have to see here. There is nothing that the Babylonians do to God's people that God himself is unwilling to endure. There is nothing the Babylonians will do to God's people that God himself is unwilling to endure. This is not the God of the deists here in Habakkuk. This is not a God who is standing by indifferent to the suffering of his people, just pulling the levers of history. You see, the ultimate answer to Habakkuk's prayer is the cross. The cross is the place where God ultimately deals with sin and evil and wickedness. But the cross is the solution that was worse than the problem. Not for us, but for God. God could have simply destroyed sinners when sin entered the world. He would have had a world full of holiness if he had done that. But he didn't do that. On the cross, God himself absorbs the cost of our sin and our rebellion in Jesus. And what he is doing as the cross gets worked deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our bones is he is giving us permission He is giving us the ability to lament and to lean into a broken world without despair because sin and death are no longer the truest things about us. God's love for us in Christ is. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning as people who live in a world that is full of sin and brokenness, and yet also full of your steadfast love. Father, we pray that you would teach us to hate sin, that you would show us our sin, and teach us to turn away from it. Father, help us to love what is true and good and beautiful. Help us to love holiness and righteousness. Help us to walk in obedience and uprightness. And Father, as we experience pain and sin and death and their effects, we pray that you would teach us to lament. Teach us to speak our experiences 
to you, knowing that you aren't threatened by our experience, but you welcome us to ask you to intervene. You welcome us to be honest about what we feel and what we see and the hurts that we endure. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the truth of what you have done for us in Christ, the truest thing about us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.